This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week, the Defence Secretary on the difficult decisions facing the forces and more clues on who's facing the deepest cuts and how Britain's intervention in Sierra Leone is helping turn around another war-torn African state. It's quite right that African nations should be helping to sort out the problems of, of their own kind, of their own nations in Africa. The Defence Secretary was hoping to use a speech today to give some pointers to exactly where the cuts will be made as the army is restructured. But the newspapers have beaten Philip Hammond to it. The Times claiming the Gurkhas face no more significant cuts, but four infantry battalions and two cavalry battalions will be lost through disbandments and amalgamations. The paper suggests the Yorkshire Regiment, the Mercian Regiment and the Queen's Division will all be hit. Our reporter James Hurst spoke to the Defence Secretary earlier. As far as the infantry is concerned, I've made very clear today that we will do our very best to protect uh, the infantry regiments that we have. We see the value, huge value, in the regimental structure. That will be the basis of the army going forward. What I can't promise is that we won't lose any battalions as we move to a smaller uh, size of army. Um, But of course the work that's being done now is about the overall balance of the army between infantry between uh, armour and between the supporting uh, services, getting the configuration right for the type of warfare that we're expecting to fight in the future, making sure that although we've got a smaller army, it will be a very well-equipped army uh, and a very deployable army. That configuration, you've also said, will require greater commitment from reservists. Can you elaborate on what kind of greater commitment they're going to be asked to make? Well, we'll set, these, uh, we'll set out the, the, the new deal for reserves in detail uh, when I make the statement to Parliament. But yes, the, the, the deal is basically this. We are putting in £1.8 billion of additional money for reserve training uh, and equipment. In exchange, we'll be asking our reservists to make a clearer commitment to the training liability and a clearer commitment with their employers uh, to the periodic deployment liability. So we're going to build the future army around the proposition uh, that infantry battalions will be paired with TA battalions and those TA battalions will be expected to find a deployable force to go with their regular pair battalion when it is deployed. So in in other words, the deal is we will give you real training and real equipment and in exchange you will make a real commitment to the army. You are though dependent on employers buying into this and the self-employed being able to afford it? Absolutely and I think there are uh, probably three different pools that we have to tap. People who work in the public sector where we will be saying something about the principles that the public sector will use in supporting uh, employees to uh, join the reserve. Uh, People who work for big companies where we'll be challenging those companies to match the public sector employers offer. And then people who work for themselves or in very small businesses where increasingly um, they want to use uh, participation in the reserves as part of a sort of portfolio uh, career that they adopt, managing their own time uh, and seeing their training commitment and their periodic deployments as part of their overall career pattern. You've also indicated the new balance could mean greater use of contractors. 
to some that will look like privatising parts of the army. Uh, I don't see it that way. There are three parts to our um, total force at the moment. We have the army, regular and reserves. Uh, we have uh, the civilian uh, employees of MOD who support the, uh, uh, the armed forces. And then we have contractors who, as anyone serving in the armed forces knows, are already deployed um, quite far forward. Uh, in our chain, into theatre. Uh, and those, uh, the use of contractors to provide specialist services um, in theatre uh, will continue in the future and we will also work more effectively with allies around shared support services to make sure that every pound we have to spend goes as far as it possibly can. Every pound we have to spend delivers the maximum possible military effect. When will the men and women of the armed forces find out the detail on this, including the future of their own regiments and battalions? Well, of course, the, um, uh, the army redundancy process is already um, underway, and because of the uh, needs of uh, OPHERIC, um, it will be many years before we actually get to the uh, 82,000 sized army. Um, in terms of the structure and battalions and other units, I hope to be making an announcement to Parliament before the summer recess, just as soon as the Chief of the General Staff has finished the analytical work that he's doing around recruitment and retention patterns. That was the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond talking to James Hurstle. With me in the studio is BFBS's Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello Christopher. Hello. Um, you sat for three years on the National Employers Liaison Committee which dealt exactly with this thing dealing with reservists wasn't it and employers. Um, what do you think about what the Defence Secretary says there, what he's outlining? Well the first thing is that the, all, the, all the problems that he's identified for example um, looking at employers who are, who are on sort of a national scale like the NHS uh, which is very important, and looking at uh, people who are working in the commercial sector and then the self-employed, where they're exactly the same problems that we faced in the 90s, at the end of the 90s. And there, there are sort of very obvious things. If you take, for example, uh, the sort of people he's talking about, and that's cyber warfare maybe, um, certainly intelligence and medical, that's always been the same. That's a great value of the reserves, especially the TA. For example, the British Army cannot go to war without the TA medics. And quite often you find, for example, that 70% of the medics in a, in a long operation like, uh, like Herrick, in fact, are reservists. They're reserve doctors, they're senior nurses, etc. The biggest problem is, in fact, an employer who says, listen, um, these, are hard, these are hard times. I didn't mind the days when I could send off a soldier on a Friday and I'd get him back as a better manager on a Monday because he's had some military discipline. But now you're asking me to do six months, let, let him go for six months. And the soldier is saying, I'd love to do it, but in the meantime, what about my promotional prospects in my civilian job because I'm going to be falling out of, the, out of the loop? And that is one of the practical difficulties, which I'm sure is possible to get over, but it's very difficult. How do you get over it? Um, what do you it, do? It, it, it's possible to get over because you, you go for certain areas. So, for example, if you take a medic and a medic goes off to what, what has been Afghanistan, it, there is a tremendous amount of experience on the job experience which links up with what you're doing in the civilian job. But these are very rare things. When you get down to the infantry or you get down to the Royal Naval Reserve and a bit of the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve, which there isn't much now. When you get down to them, it is far more difficult to, to sort things. So, for example, the Army and the Navy uh, provide 
most of the uh, trained interrogators. They, tra they, they provide most of the, the, the linguists, for example. Well, that's probably because they're doing the job in their civilian life. But what happens when you get down to some guy who's self-employed? And he was saying, uh, Mr. Hammond was saying there, well, you know, we will try and sort of uh, put this in such a way that a man who is self-employed can put it on his, uh, his CV. Listen, the man who is self-employed is self-employed. You know, when he doesn't, when he's not at work on a Saturday or a Sunday, he is not getting paid. And that's the difference in this economic climate. It's going to stay there for some time. Indeed. And when are we going to get the actual concrete exactly announced then? The announcement has to go to Parliament, has to go before Parliament, not just as a document, but, but from a statement from the Defence Secretary. My guess is that the, it'll be either the end of this month or it'll be the first week in, in July, maybe sort of around about July 6, 7. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Sit Rep with Kate Chabot. Still to come this week, how Britain's intervention in Sierra Leone could turn things around elsewhere. And the forces look back at the Jubilee weekend. What an honour. It is just the most amazing experience to be able to, to represent not only your, your regiment, your army, a day that I'll never forget. It was the chance of a lifetime. America's policy of directly targeting al-Qaeda militants for drone strikes appears to have paid off once again this week. Officials in Washington say the death of Abu Yahya al-Libi is a significant blow to the terror group's operations. He was one of 15 to die in a drone attack in the northwest of Pakistan, close to the Afghan border. Here's White House spokesman Jay Carney. He served as al-Qaeda's general manager, responsible for overseeing the group's day-to-day -day operations in the tribal areas of Pakistan, and he managed outreach to al-Qaeda's regional affiliates. Al-Libi's death is a major blow to core al-Qaeda, uh, removing the number two leader for the second time in less than a year, and further damaging the group's morale and cohesion, and bringing it closer to its ultimate demise than ever before. Well, this week we've learned more about America's increasing reliance on drone strikes and how a so-called kill list is drawn up. Correspondent Simon Marks, who's in Washington, D.C., has been following the story. He's on the line now. Hello, Simon. Hello, Kate. Um, officials have revealed President Obama is directly involved in drawing up the target list and sanctions most of the drone strikes personally then. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, directly involved in approving whether drone strikes against certain targets should go ahead or not. This is, uh, to some extent, the president's critics would contend, rather like a Roman emperor sitting on the sidelines and giving the thumbs up or thumbs down uh, to determine whether particular al-Qaeda or other militant uh, candidates for killing as a result of a drone airstrike should indeed be killed. And he apparently sits in the White House, uh, flanked by... Uh, John Brennan, his counter-terrorism chief, pours over lists of candidates for uh, to be on the receiving end of drone airstrikes and decides which strikes should take place and which ones should not. And it's called a kill or capture list, but it does seem the US isn't really interested in capturing anyone. Why is that? Well, it's a kill or capture list in the sense that if the president were to decide that a certain target should not uh, be on the receiving end of a drone strike, then theoretically other measures could be taken to try and capture that target, although it is evident that most of the focus here is indeed on trying to kill some of these al-Qaeda leaders, as we've seen, eight separate uh, drone strikes in the last two weeks alone, culminating with uh, the weekend airstrike that killed al-Qaeda's uh, sort of newly minted second-in-command, if you like. Uh, one of the reasons uh, that uh, it's suggested the focus is on killing these militants rather than capturing them is 
is that you'll remember President Obama came into office pledging to close the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center. He has not done that. Now, if you capture these militants, the most likely destination for them is still Guantanamo Bay. So uh, the sense is that the president is anxious not uh, to inflate uh, the membership ranks of those detainees currently housed at Guantanamo Bay, given that he's on the record as saying he thinks that Gitmo is a terrible idea and should be shut down, even though he hasn't quite figured out yet how to close it. And it, uh, Christopher Lee, um, are these attacks legal? Um, that's the great uh, John Brennan uh, that um, uh, we just heard was is, is, is the counterterrorism advisor. He says, yes, it is. I don't see where it's been tested yet. The legality. Uh, on, on what grounds does he say it's legal? Though? Uh, he says because it 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 is it is against the enemies of the United States, and therefore the United States sees them as legitimate targets. If you go back just a few years, say when the British Army was in in Northern Ireland, and it was chasing say terrorists down in Armagh, and they saw the terrorists go off in, across the bridge into uh, into Southern Ireland into Era, we could not do what was called hot pursuit. If you sent troops often to Waziristan, you can't necessarily describe that as anything else but hot pursuit. What's happened is the drone is doing the job for you, and that's fine as far as, as, far as they're concerned, but it's got to be tested at some point. Remember all the agonies that British government apparently went over about going into Iraq, and whether that was legal or not legal, and who will decide, well, it's United Nations, etc. There's one point I'd take just a thought uh, with, with that Simon mentioned, uh, and that is the whole thing about Guantanamo and the kill or capture. That capture list is still very, very important. It is not a kill list, because what you want, you go and kill, say, a, a, a big guy, but what you actually want, there are certain people you actually want to capture them, because the captured guys are the ones you want to interrogate and find out much more about the structure and what the, what the common antics are, as they call them in America. Uh, Simon, uh, in terms of the kill, um a lot of the discrepancies, well, there's a lot of argument about how many civilians are actually killed in these strikes. Just explain the way the U.S. is calculating and making that perhaps less distasteful for the U.S. public. Well, that's right. I mean, the United States says that there have been a fairly low level of civilian casualties as a result of these drone airstrikes. Critics of the strikes say, how do you know that? Uh, the way the U.S. views this, if an al-Qaeda uh, leader is travelling in a convoy, the assumption is made that all the members of that convoy are combatants and they are therefore all considered fair game. Uh, there have also been incidents when al-Qaeda uh, uh, operatives have been targeted, flanked by members of their own family and President Obama is reportedly uh, poring over the decision about whether or not to attack uh, an al-Qaeda leader under those circumstances or not. But by including everyone that is surrounding the target on the list of combatants, critics say, well, how do you know that they're not civilians? Now, the United States contends uh, one of the ways they can tell they're not civilians is that after the weekend airstrike, for example, in North Waziristan, there were no civilian funerals in the area. So that leads them to believe that the people travelling with the particular al-Qaeda leader targeted were indeed supportive of him and part of his operation. But critics say you can't be absolutely certain because you don't actually know who these men and sometimes women are, uh, that are encountered with uh, the target of the airstrike. 
Uh, we used to call it collateral damage, didn't we, Simon? In, 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 yes, Christopher, exactly. why do you think the rest of the world seems happy to turn a blind eye to something which Pakistan obviously views as an invasion of its territory? Because for the rest of the world, it doesn't hurt, does it? And that's then it's not. But it may do in, one day, mightn't it? Ah, it? Because well, that's the NATO is uh, European members of NATO are going to get these sort of drones. Can I give you the six points that, that really the rest of the world, NATO and America, say? These drones are accurate. They have intelligence-gathering targets. There's no invasion, in other words, no boots on the ground. They're less vulnerable and more accurate than, say, aircraft. And also, most importantly, targets, or Taliban or whatever, people who aren't even targets yet, they feel vulnerable, and they are very nervous 24 hours, 24-7, and that is a great asset as far as the Americans are concerned uh, for this drone system. All right, Christmas Day with us. Simon Marks in Washington, thanks very much for your time today. Thanks, Kate. It's 10 years since the end of Sierra Leone's civil war, a vicious conflict which only ended when British and other foreign troops intervened. But our involvement didn't end there. British military trainers have remained in the country helping to develop Sierra Leone's own forces. Now the techniques taught by the International Military Advisory and Training Team, or IMAT, are being passed on as a battalion of Sierra Leone's troops are sent to Somalia, another country plagued by civil war. Ali Gibson has had exclusive access to their training. <coughs> Leo Battalion 1 are under attack. An insurgent is firing from a nearby farmhouse and they must secure the area. Under British instruction from IMAT and the short-term training team, the soldiers advance to contact. You cover the front and you open you cover the left and right flank. This MRX is to prepare these troops for their upcoming deployment to Amasom, the African mission in Somalia. The 850-strong battalion will work with the Kenyans in the southwest of the country. Their aim, to help stabilise Somalia and defeat al-Shabaab, a militant group operating with links to al-Qaeda. From being at civil war themselves to helping Somalia with their own war, the Arslaf have come a long way. Acting Chief of Defence Staff Brigadier Samuel Williams. In 1999, to be precise, those of us who are in service felt everything was lost. So when I started trickling in, Whatever I thought uh, it was going to be anything serious. Yes, after that, I think we are here today. We regain the trust and confidence of the society. And then professionally, I think the ISLF can hold its own ground. They took command on me. Their year-long deployment in Somalia is going to be extremely tough, but these soldiers are prepared and feel it's time to pay back. No problem. I'm ready to deploy there because I've got enough stuff for me to deploy in Somalia. I feel happy to do that because I know that the Nigeria and the other country they came here to help us and that's why myself I'm happy to go and help another country because they have trained us properly to go and work for another country. Ten years before he became chief of the defence staff, General Sir David Richards gambled his career on Sierra Leone. When British military intervention began with a rescue mission in 2000, Richards knew the country needed more help. British forces stayed for two years, ending a civil war in which rebels had used child soldiers and amputations as their brutal trademarks. Five meter, that is your limit of execution. Riyog! Riyog! But helping to calm Somalia's civil war is not a British force, but over 6,000 peacekeepers from the African Union. The idea of Africans dealing with their own problems is developing. Colonel Jamie Martin is the CEO of IMAT, a team of Brits, Americans, Canadians, Nigerians and Ghanaians who've been training Sierra Leoneans here since the end of the conflict. The Ugandans and the Burundians have been in Somalia for nearly two years now. The Kenyans are now in Somalia and the Sierra Leoneans and other nations will join them. So I think it's, it's a very well-founded principle and it's quite right that African nations should be helping to sort out the problems of, of their own 
kind of their own nations in Africa, but they will inevitably require considerable support and assistance from UK, US and others. The RSLAF are keen to stand on their own two feet. Captain Ibrahim Fafona is an instructor here. Trained by IMAT, he now trains others. Don't give me fish. Teach me how to get my own fish. So now we have got our own fish. They gave us the knowledge and we are passing it now to our own men. There's also progress at the Armed Forces Training Centre in Benguema. Once a year, around 200 recruits graduate as soldiers and officers here. Hundreds of families turn out for the event, reflecting the high regard in which the RSLAF are now held. This centre used to be run with the assistance of a small team from IMAT, but since last year the Sierra Leoneans have been doing all the training themselves. For the newly graduated troops, it's a very proud moment. The mark has already been made. We have good officers and I just want to contribute to their good work. I feel so much happy. For a long time being in, a, let me say, almost a cage. I thank God for releasing me today and be a happy woman now. As the British armed forces shrink under defence cuts, post-Afghanistan and other large-scale operations seems more unlikely. But the IMAT model of training the armed forces of other nations could be another way to make a difference. Major Rich Crawford is heading up the short-term training team for this exercise. I think it's a way ahead. If we're not ourselves going to go on the ground in these countries, I can't see us going to Somalia, but we can help train the soldiers who are going there. And with our recent operation experience, we've got a lot to bring to the party and a lot we can help train people. Traditionally, the British Army has always been good at training out around the globe, and I think it probably is somewhere where we can add a lot of value in the future. After 10 years of assistance, the future is looking bright for the RSLAF, and Sierra Leone has reason to celebrate. Ali Gibson with that reporter. Christopher, isn't this an example perhaps of the smart defence that the Chief of Defence Staff has talked about and sort of triumphed for the future? Yeah, it's all... Um, we, we should put it in perspective, some sort of perspective. Britain has always done this. Now, for example, since World War II, there have been 21, if you 22 if you include the SAS operations, there have been 21 operations in different countries by British forces... There's only one year since World War II when a British soldier hasn't been killed, and that's 1968. Since 1945, something like eight, getting on for 8,500 British soldiers have been killed in the sort of preparations they're doing, or rather the operations they're uh, sort of training for. So this has been going all the time. But we're now talking about not having a Cold War. We do this buzz term, asymmetric war. It's a war where two sides actually uh, may be unequal, but you can, still, you, can, you can still fight each other. It's a crude way of describing it. And that's what we're getting into. Nobody really wants to go into Somali, by the way. Uh, if you look at Sierra Leone itself, though, um, despite our intervention there, 70% of its people still in poverty. Only one in four children li live to see their fifth birthday, so still a lot to do. Uh, still a lot for the Sierra Leoneans to do. Uh, not for the British Army. I mean, they can create the conditions which might be helpful for the people of Sierra Leone, but we're not in there to sort of uh, to do a, 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 a big sort of charity job on them. It's been a busy week for the forces with the military front and centre at celebrations of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. In case you somehow managed to miss it, here are a few highlights. But it's all worth it because I can't wait to see the Queen and I think she's very good at being Queen. 
As a country, we do ceremonial fantastically in the Royal Navy today. It's our day to show Her Majesty how proud we are to serve her. that I have attended to mark my Diamond Jubilee have been a humbling experience. I will continue to treasure and draw inspiration from the countless kindnesses shown to me in this country and throughout the Commonwealth. Well, apart from Sunday's flotilla on the Thames, the forces led Tuesday's ceremonial procession to Buckingham Palace. Captain Alex Owen of the Household Cavalry Mounted Regiment was taking part. I was commanding uh, a division of uh, the Blues and Rolls, uh, and I was riding um, with them, the, the division right in front of the carriage, actually. So we were 25 yards in front of the carriage, um, and I was, I was commanding 25 men and horses. It was an amazing experience. What did it feel like riding past such huge crowds? Quite, quite incredible, but for me, it was almost sort of just, it, it was literally background noise. We were so intent on our job, so focused on making sure that we were the correct distance, the correct spacing, looking our smartest and, and keeping control of those horses with the guns firing, um, that we didn't really notice it was actually like being uh, in a battle uh, in, in the peninsula. It was incredible. Do you think the crowds actually understand that, you know, those people sitting on those horses could be fighting on the front line within months when they see you like they did? When people see us in our ceremony uniform, especially down at Horse Guards Parade um, and, and mounting the Queen's Lifeguard, which is our normal sort of day-to-day -day business, they probably do think we are very much a ceremonial thing. Um, so it's nice when we're on parade and you see the guys with their medals um, and you see just how much work goes in behind the scenes. There were several characters on parade who got back uh, from Afghanistan with D Squadron on their last tour um, last year went through riding school, they finished riding school only a matter of um, weeks ago uh, and they were there riding, riding on a parade, um, you know, in, in the troops, in the divisions, going down the mall in front of hundreds of thousands of people. But what an honour, it is just the most amazing experience to be able to, to represent not only your, your regiment, your army, but, you know, we are part of the fabric of the nation now, we're, we're, we're such a symbol of national identity and to be that is, is an incredible honour. A day that I'll never forget, it was the chance of a lifetime immensely, immensely grateful for the opportunity to do that. That was Captain Alex Owen of the Household Cavalry Mounted Regiment. Well, Major Andrew Chatburn is the ceremonial officer behind Tuesday's carriage procession. It seemed to go very well. There were one or two little hiccups along the way, but nothing that uh, affected the procedures at all, and it's just good for lessons learned for future events. But in the main, it was quite a complex operation, which we obviously try to keep as simple as we can, because simplicity always works the best. What were the hiccups, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, they're just minor things where there's movement on the route when you're forming up uh, beforehand. But these are just very minor issues, none of which affect the actual ceremony itself. It's usually in the forming up that we have these issues. In terms of the crowd numbers, did anything surprise you there? 
Yeah, well, certainly in certain areas along around Whitehall and Trafalgar Square, they were much larger than I suppose we in the military anticipated. I think the police had a fair idea of the numbers of people that were there. But of course, this is a unique event and uh, you can estimate and you can try and guesstimate on the day. It was great. Before you actually go out there and do what you have to do on the day, are there any last messages that you give to those taking part? No, not really, because we do. We had an early morning rehearsal, which was last Friday. We learn a number of things from that, bearing in mind that the vast majority of people who are on parade are active service soldiers, sailors and airmen. And so coming to ceremonial is something new to them. And, of course, we rehearse it. We do a debriefing, and the services and units do their own debriefings beyond that. We do our one rehearsal, and we go out on the day. You mentioned about them obviously being active servicemen uh, and women. How does the ceremonial play into that? Are they, do they get more nervous about it because it's something new to them compared to what their day job is? More nervous? I don't know. Perhaps apprehensive about the occasion itself so as not to let themselves and their units down and to make sure that, you know, the they've got themselves well fed and watered so that we don't have any medical issues but no I think people just go out and, and try we try to encourage them to enjoy the day if it's new to them obviously to do what they, they needed to do uh, but to enjoy the event itself of course the Jubilee is just one event and a very busy summer for you it is indeed uh, but uh, you know these things are are there we, we plan well ahead head for them on this occasion it was a very unique event which had a worldwide audience very much like the royal wedding last year all the other events take place and they're no less or no more important than the one that we've just done that was major andrew chapburn christopher the weekend seemed to mark very publicly that connection between the forces and the royal family yeah and it it, is quite tight uh, most of the royal family have been in the forces some way and some in very practical ways. I think of the Duke of York, for example, was in the Falklands War. And I was thinking also watching this. These guys are not toy soldiers, are they? No. Nope. Um, that's the point. You, you, you do royal duties. Uh, you, you, you ponce down the mall. And the next thing, what are you doing? You're off to Afghanistan. I was thinking also there's, uh, there's a chum of mine got a call at 3 o'clock in the morning 30 years ago and he was on royal duties. And he said, we're going to the Falklands. Uh, he was the colonel in charge of logistics. Leave your spurs in the drawer. I'll see you in the morning. And that is a reminder that what happens next is important. And this is what these guys are trained for. They're very good at GGs, but they're very, very good at what else they do. Christopher, um, five seconds to say what's happening next week. What's look out for? Uh, look out for a NATO meeting next week where they will be discussing, as we can imagine, drones. Okay, Christopher, thank you. That is it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and, of course, to Christopher Lee. Next week, we mark the 30th anniversary of Britain's victory in the Falklands with a special report from the islands. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, follow us at BFBS Sitrep, and on our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast. Until next week, from me, Kate Jobo, thanks for listening, and bye-bye for now. Sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.